Hello, and welcome to A Mighty Blaze podcast. I'm your host, Tricia Blanchett. A Mighty Blaze is a group of 30 volunteer creatives working to help connect readers, authors, and independent bookstores during the COVID-19 pandemic and well beyond. We've been so fortunate to interview hundreds of authors on our live stream feeds on Facebook and YouTube throughout the past year, talking with debut writers and bestsellers and everyone in between. On today's episode, we journey over to Mark Cecil's series, The Thoughtful Bro, where he welcomes prize-winning, best-selling author, Yaa Jassi. Yaa's debut novel, Homegoing, won an avalanche of awards in 2017, including the Penn Hemingway Award for Best First Book. Her next novel, Transcendent Kingdom, was released mid-pandemic in September 2020 and has been longlisted for the Andrew Carnegie Medal for Excellence in Fiction. Mark and Yaa talk about the spiritual conflicts of her latest story, the complicated concept of home, and the freedom of exploring new themes and approaches in each new novel. So settle in and enjoy the conversation as I pass the blaze torch to Mark and his very special guest, Yaa Jassi. Hey everybody, it's Mark Cecil, live streaming on a mighty blaze for the Thoughtful Bro, here with Yaa Jesse for another amazing, amazing interview. I'm so excited to have her here. Yaa, welcome to the Thoughtful Bro. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh my gosh. Okay, so a few things to get started. As usual, I'm Mark Cecil. I'm a writer, I'm an editor, and I'm, I'm a journalist. I'm here to talk about what makes books great, what makes stories tick, what makes authors tick. We're here to talk about the storytelling craft, and we're always trying to get great authors to talk about new books, which they have just released, which is definitely the case um, today with Yaa. Um, we, um, as I said, we're live streaming on A Mighty Blades. If you wanna leave a comment um, or a question for Yaa, please do so in the comments section, and I will try to get to it at the end of the interview. We'll probably go about 30, 45 minutes and get to all your questions at the end. Um, next week, I'm gonna be on with David Goodwillie. He is the author of the fresh, celebrated, very, very literary, very, very heart-wrenching um, new novel called Kings County. Um, so that's gonna be terrific too. Again, next week at 2 p.m. with David Goodwillie. But on to the big show this week. Um, so I'm so thrilled, as I said, to welcome Yaa Jesse. She's the author of um, the new novel, Transcendent Kingdom, which um, released last week. Um, a little bit about Yaa, she was born in Ghana and raised in Alabama. She's the graduate of the Iowa Writers Workshop. Her debut, which many of you I know read, um, called Homegoing, was a story of race, history, ancestry, and love spanning eight generations um, of one family in their odyssey um, from Africa to the United States. Um, Homegoing was a massive critical and commercial success, um, and it led to Yaa being listed as one of the National Book Foundation's five under 35 honorees. Um, among, other of the, among the many awards it won, um, Homegoing was the winner of the National Book Critics Circle John Leonard Prize and the Penn Hemingway Award for Best First Novel. Um, now, as I said, she's back with her sophomore effort, uh, Transcendent Kingdom, which is already um, getting amazing reviews, um, getting amazing press. Um, I feel like deeply, deeply fortunate that you made time for us today here on The Thoughtful Bro. So yeah, again, we're so excited to have you here. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This is great. All right. So um, first, do you have a copy of your book that people can just see? I do. <laughs> this is Transcendent Kingdom. 
just came out on Tuesday. I've got some tabs in it to open the places to read, but this is it. Awesome, awesome. And so folks, you can also, in the comments section, we're gonna have um, our folks posting links for you to buy that book. So just go ahead, make an impulse buy right now. You won't regret <laughs> it. Um, so yeah, why don't you just go ahead, just tell us what the book is about. Um, so the book is about a young woman named Gifty who is getting her doctorate in neuroscience. Um, and she studies the neural pathways of reward-seeking behavior, which basically just means that she studies things like addiction and depression. Um, and it's at a time in her life when her mother, who is suffering from depression, um, comes to stay with her. So she finds herself doing her research while trying to take care of her mother, while also reflecting back on her childhood, um, particularly the years that led up to her beloved older brother's death um, from a heroin overdose. Um, so it's a novel about family and love and mother-daughter relationships and uh, mental illness and science. Wow, wow. Yeah, we're gonna get into like <laughs> as much of that as we can because there's so much <laughs> happening in this book. It's one of these books where it's like, there's like all these things are kind of happening at once. There's just mm -hmm. so many things going on on like every page on multiple levels. So we're gonna get to all of that. But first, do you wanna just do a quick reading so people get a taste for the work? Sure, I would love to. And I'm just going to read from the very beginning, so don't worry about spoilers. <laughs> Whenever I think of my mother, I picture a queen-sized bed with her lying in it, a practiced stillness filling the room. For months on end, she colonized that bed like a virus, the first time when I was a child, and then again when I was a graduate student. The first time, I was sent to Ghana to wait her out. While there, I was walking through Kejitia Market with my aunt when she grabbed my arm and pointed. Look, a crazy person, she said in Tree. Do you see a crazy person? I was mortified. My aunt was speaking so loudly, and the man, tall with dust caked into his dreadlocks, was with an earshot. I see, I see, I answered in a low hiss. The man continued past us, mumbling to himself as he waved his hands about in gestures that only he could understand. My aunt nodded, satisfied, and we kept walking past the hordes of people gathered in that agoraphobia-inducing market until we reached the stall where we would spend the rest of the morning attempting to sell knockoff handbags. In my three months there, we sold only four bags. Even now, I don't completely understand why my aunt singled the man out to me. Maybe she thought there were no crazy people in America, that I had never seen one before. Or maybe she was thinking about my mother, about the real reason I was stuck in Ghana that summer, sweating in a stall with an aunt I hardly knew while my mother healed at home in Alabama. I was 11, and I could see that my mother wasn't sick, not in the ways that I was used to. I didn't understand what my mother needed healing from. I didn't understand, but I did. And my embarrassment at my aunt's loud gesture had as much to do with my understanding as it did with the man who had passed us by. My aunt was saying that, that is what crazy looks like. But instead, what I heard was my mother's name. What I saw was my mother's face, still as lake water, the pastor's hand resting gently on her forehead, his prayer a light hum that made the room buzz. 
I'm not sure I know what crazy looks like, but even today, when I hear the word, I picture a split screen, the dreadlocked man in Kejitya on one side, my mother lying in bed on the other. I think about how no one at all reacted to that man in the market, not in fear or disgust, nothing, save my aunt who wanted me to look. He was, it seemed to me, at perfect peace, even as he gesticulated wildly, even as he mumbled. But my mother, in her bed, infinitely still, was wild inside. Mm. You know, so good. And having read the whole book and just finished it a couple nights ago, I just see that opening so much more clearly now and how it's an overture for all the themes of the book and this kind of split screen and the different interpretations of mental illness. Um, uh, that so I'm so glad you read that. That it just like it meant so much more to me, kind of coming back to it now. Um, but you know, one thing I want to talk about with just jumping as a jumping off point is your prose style. So I, I think your prose style it's it's very crisp. It's smooth, it's clear, and it's accessible. And I think that like this accessibility is what gives, is one of the things that helps give your work its emotional power. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering like, um, you know, people as kind of pro styles and are in many ways like their fingerprints, you just kind of can't help the way you naturally express yourself. But I'm just wondering, did you have certain influences and is there a kind of an intentionality around this uh, very clear, kind of immediacy in your prose style? Yeah, sure. Um, I definitely spend a lot of time thinking about um, prose style. Um, and I think it is, as you said, like a fingerprint, like partly you can't help what, you're what you gravitate toward. Um, but I think for me, a thing that I really appreciate um, in other people's writing is clarity. I hate being just lost in the middle of a sentence, not really knowing what's going on. Um, so whenever I sit down to write, one of the things that I try to accomplish is to make it as clear as possible so that you can always understand what is meant by every sentence. Um, I think that that helps, helps make it accessible um, without losing any of the beauty. Like I still appreciate lyricism in, in a sentence, um, in sentences, but I think um, if, you, if you finish a sentence and you have no understanding of like where it begins and where it ends really, um, that, that to me is, is a problem. So I always want, um, I want sentences that are beautiful, but also crisp um, and clear. Oh. I mean, I just on a personal level, I like, couldn't agree more. That just, I mean, yeah. and I think it's it's also a question of personal taste. And while like I sort of respect lyricism, I just I find a style like yours so engaging because you're just never lost. And it mm -hmm. seems like with a style like that, also you really it seems like you really care that the reader understands your story. And yeah. and I, I just never found my mind wandering, which is a pretty typical thing. You read a book and your mind kind of wanders off, but with a style like yours, you're just always right there, right in the flow. And so it really works. That's great. That's great. Yeah. Um, I think I was also sensitive to it because I was talking about themes that maybe, um, I was talking about like scientific concepts that maybe would be hard to understand. Mm. And so I wanted, I wanted it to be readable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, total, total success in that. Um, just um, one thing real quick about the title, Transcendent Kingdom. I mean, there is kind of an interesting reason why you chose that, and can you just talk about the title? 
Sure. Um, so the title is taken from this moment early on in the novel where Gifty is talking about a teacher who said something along the lines of um, humans are the only only animals who believe that they have transcended their kingdom. Um, and she's talking about like the kingdom phylum class order, like she's talking about animal uh, mm -hmm. kingdom. Um, but I think Gifty takes it um, and kind of runs with it and thinking about humans who um, make choices that they don't quite understand, humans who are attempting to ask transcendent questions. Um, so I think there are many layers to it, but it's on, it, it speaks to the level of, um, of humans as an animal. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and clearly it's like a jumping off point for like, I think the core of the book, which is this spiritual searching and meaning making that, that, that Gifty embarks upon in her right. journey. And, and we'll get to all the spiritual aspects of the book in a moment. But um, I just uh, wanted to ask you, so, I mean, this book is very different from Homegoing. Um, I think I mean, a, your, your touch as a literary artist is, is, is very recognizable there. I mean, the, the, st the styles I found were similar, but I mean, that's this like sweeping epic that is a very kind of unique structure. Um, and this is a very intimate family drama. Um, and I guess I just wanted to know, was there a kind of like itch you had after home going like I just want to write something totally different totally focused um or was there or was it just this just is what came to you I think it's a mix you know I think if you had asked me like as I was writing this I would have said it's just what came to me I wanted mm -hmm. to tell the story as it needed to be told this felt so different from the beginning like I knew that I wanted to um, dig into this one woman's intimate life and write in the first person and cover a smaller amount of time and fewer places and all of those things kind of necess necessitated a different approach. Um, but I think in hindsight too, that there probably was something about the kind of freedom of doing something totally different um, that allowed me to stretch new muscles as a writer, to challenge myself, and also I think to to keep myself from making comparisons between the two books, which I think mm. um, is a trap that, that a lot of writers might fall into for a second novel, particularly when your first novel does as well as Homegoing did. Mm. Um, it took me a while to kind of find my voice again and feel like I was um, really kind of sinking my teeth into a new book. Um, and I think one of the things that helped me feel that way was writing something that was completely different from, from Homegoing. And, and just, I mean, just so, I mean, it just sort of like, to me, like following you across those two books, it just seemed like stretching, I think you said stretching your legs, like that's just such a good way to do it. Because I feel like while Homegoing was like complete and, 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 and kind of did everything it was trying to do, it did feel like this is like a kind of dimension that wasn't present. And it's not like you were trying to put that in homegoing you weren't i mean homegoing had its own thing but here's like a totally different kind of dimension of the human experience and psychology this like intimate dissection of a family and i just yeah. i mean i hope for your third book there's like a third area you go to <laughs> <laughs> but um so let's talk about this family so um i don't want to give anything away but there's just kind of four main characters there's a father and a mother and a son and a daughter and I don't think it's any secret to say that these four end up deeply divided and end up in very, very different places by the end of the book. Um, and it, you almost kind of like 
couldn't find a way to divide these people any more than they're divided. And in that way, it's like this tragic family drama. And um, there's so many things that are going on here. There is um, you know, kind of a race issue. There's a kind of immigrant issue. There is um, just cultural, spiritual issues. But I just wanted to like open the floor to you. Just can you just talk about what are the pressures, the unique pressures upon this family that drive them apart? Sure. Um, well, there's so many pressures, as you as you said. I think the first is just um, that the parents themselves disagree on how best to raise their children. Um, Gifty's mother um, deeply wants to immigrate to America. Um, this is before Gifty is born. She and her father argue about it, um, and ultimately she wins. So the family moves. Um, and, you know, the feeling for him doesn't go away. He hates it in America. He, you know, hates having to kind of feel like an outsider. They end up in Alabama. Um, so he's experiencing racism for the first time on this particular level. Um, he has trouble finding a job. Um, and so he, he's just kind of miserable here. And so the parents start fighting. Um, not an uncommon story for many people who are the children of divorce, but Gifty watches them separate. Um, and that, that rift, I think, begins all of the other rifts that occur in this family as they kind of start to learn how to work through or not work through the trauma of, um, of this separation of the parents. Um, and Nana turns to drugs um, and the and Gifty's mother who, who goes unnamed. Um, she becomes incredibly depressed. Um, Gifty herself, I think, turns inward. Um, so she's a character who, who throws up these walls and is very guarded um, and hard to get to know. Um, and so she and her mother, I think, are doing this dance for the entire novel where they're trying to understand one another, where Gifty's trying to take care of her mother, um, but they don't really have the language for understanding each other because Gifty's mother is still so deeply religious that she can't even admit to herself that what she's going through is depression. Um, and Gifty, the scientist who studies these phenomenon, only thinks about it as depression and can't relate to her mother on her level. Um, so I think the all of the separations really originate from this um, from this one separation between the two parents, but um, but really it's just uh, a book that really is interested in how we make sense of our lives after a particular wound has occurred, um, after some, some tension has occurred. And, and I think like one of the really striking things about your main character, Gifty, is that she takes a um, very, she, her kind of response to all this trauma is I'm going to achieve and I'm going to be brilliant and I'm going to be just basically like unassailable from, you know, a kind of traditional achievement perspective. And I just thought like that was sort of, um, you know, the other, the other three, their reactions seem, I mean, you can like understand their reactions, their actions somehow seem more traditional to, to kind mm. of like, but 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 Gifty is a very she's just driving herself and like the only answer to this suffering is brilliance. I mean, do you think is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that's very fair to say. I mean, I think it's like an element of control in a in a world where she has realized that she has so little control over the things that are happening around her. She desperately wants to see her brother get well. She desperately wants to see her mother get well. 
and and she understands that wanting these things doesn't change them and so the only thing that she feels that she has control over um, is how she does how she performs and so she becomes like an incredibly dedicated um, student she becomes a perfectionist um, and she is seeking all of these answers um, via science to questions that are frankly unanswerable. Um, but I think it, it comes back to wanting to um, wanting to feel as though she has some element of control in her life. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I've heard you talk about the concept of home. I mean, clearly like you're sort of talking about it in your work in your novels, but more specifically, I've heard you answer questions about what the meaning of home is when you're doing interviews and things. And you've said it's uh, it's a complicated question. Um, it's something, it's a feeling that you have inside yourself. It's kind of one, a way you defined it at one point. Um, but I'm just kind of curious, like how this conception, this your exploration of the meaning of home kind of plays out in this book, do you think? Sure. Um, well, Gifty has somewhat of a similar trajectory to me in that um, she grows up in Alabama, which is where I spent most of my childhood, um, but she's the child of immigrants. Um, and so I think for her, there's this disconnect between um, what her family or her parents would call home, particularly her father, um, and what she calls home. Um, so she's, she's born in the States. She doesn't um, She's never been back to Ghana except for this time when she was 11 um, and she went under desperate circumstances and so doesn't have like a positive association with the place. Um, and then even within Alabama, she's raised by a woman who kind of eschews community, who's, um, who works too much and has a hard time um, kind of making friends of her own. And so Gifty finds herself without Ghanaian community. Um, and to top it off, she lives in a predominantly white um, neighborhood, attends a predominantly white school and church. Um, so I think for Gifty, home is is certainly Alabama, like that's the that's the physical location of of her home, but it's complicated by all of these other elements. It's complicated by her um, by her mother's relationship to Ghana. It's complicated to by her race. It's um, it's a home is like a place that that doesn't feel like home. She talks a lot about how desperate she is to leave Alabama, um, and she ends up going to um, to school elsewhere. Um, so she manages to do that, but I think part of that is this um, kind of rejection of the home that has been enforced on her, that has never felt like home. One thing I did notice is that like there wasn't, um, there just wasn't a strong Ghanaian American community around her. I mean, in um, there is a scene, I, I'm careful on spoilers here, but there is a scene which occurs late in the book where there is a Ghanaian community which comes together. But I just, could you talk about that? Like why wasn't there more of a support system or maybe why didn't they go somewhere where there might, they might have found more Ghanaians? Yeah, well, I think they end up in Alabama um, just kind of by circumstance, which is that Gifty's mother has a cousin who lives mm -hmm. there um, and is attending school there. Um, so that's kind of how they get their foot in the door and end up there. Um, but then I think partly it's just the mother's personality. She's such a kind of reticent person herself. Um, and she 
still feels, I think, a lot of shame about her separation from Gifty's father. Um, and so she resists going to the Ghanaian parties unless they're close by. Um, she very rarely hosts the parties. Um, so for whatever reason, I think the mother's choice to, um, to stay away or kind of build a wall um, around her, her isolated nuclear family unit trickles down to Gifty, who experiences this isolation and lacks the opportunity to connect with other Ghanaians, um, mm -hmm. except for that time when she goes to Ghana. Um, so I think she's um, she's a character who would have greatly benefited from having community around her, um, but I don't think her mother recognized that need in, in her children. Awesome, awesome. Okay, so as if it weren't enough and deep enough and interesting enough for you to have this family drama, there is also this deep probing of the meaning of faith and the existence of God and our is a scientific inquiry into the existence of a soul or the existence of a god by a kind of neuroscientist like Gifty? Will it yield satisfying results? I mean, there it's just like this book is it, there's the family drama thing, but it's also taking on these like big, profound, classical questions of of the nature of faith. Um, so that's yet another layer, and there's more layers too. But like, let's stop for a moment on this layer and and discuss it. So, um, um, just can you just talk a little bit about just set it up for the audience like what is the kind of core nature of Gifty's crisis of faith? Sure, um, so Gifty is raised in the church. Um, she's raised Pentecostal by an incredibly devout mother um, who herself went to kind of a big bustling Pentecostal church in Ghana before coming to America. Um, so then there's a shift where she's like trying to kind of translate her understanding of religion into this new country's understanding of religion, raising her children in this faith, um, in this translation of this faith. Um, and then after Gifty's brother falls ill, um, succumbs to addiction, uh, Gifty has a harder and harder time reconciling her understanding of a loving and faithful God with the things that are happening to her brother. Um, and this is the point when she kind of turns away from her faith. Um, but her mother uh, has the opposite response. Her mother kind of digs in deeper, like the only thing that brings her comfort at that point um, is this God who has brought her through all of the other um, hardships of her life. And so it becomes this, this breaking point for the, these two women. It becomes this kind of sticking point where they can't relate to each other anymore. Gifty turns to science because she, um, she likes the clarity of it. She likes the idea that um, when you do things a certain way, you will get a certain response. She says, something like, you know, she's no longer interested in mystery. What she wants is reason. Um, and God felt mysterious to her. Um, God, is, as it was interpreted, as, as he was interpreted in her church, felt too mysterious. Um, she didn't want to hear things like God works in mysterious ways. She wanted to know why all of the things that had happened in her childhood were happening. Um, so I think uh, for her, science felt like an antidote to that. Um, though, as we see in the book, she she comes to understand that that's by these deep questions that she yeah. and um there is a way at the end of the book again without giving something away um there is a resolution that she comes to um and i'm just wondering do you do you feel like she's kind of a work in progress at the end i mean like she, i mean much of the book much of her inner arc is just about 
this um, dichotomy between God of the God of Ghana and the God of her mother and the kind of like the science of her chosen career and the United States and so on. Um, and there is a kind of middle ground or resolution she comes from. I'm just wondering, do you, are you satisfied? Do you think that she is satisfied? Is that a satisfying resolution for you? Or is she just kind of still a work in progress at the end of the book? That's a great question. You know, I think she's still a work in progress, but I think that the, um, the place that she comes to is a place of comfort and kind of ease with the unknowing. Uh, mm -hmm. I think she's like not as desperate as she was when she when we begin the book to kind of have everything nailed down, have that control, have that perfectionism. I think she's starting to at least um, allow herself to just feel at ease with the fact that she that there are things that she can't control, things that she can't know, um, and that there are parts of her life that she will never be able to kind of fully reconcile to one another. So um, even though she's, um, I don't think of her as like a uh, I think that, you know, she continues on beyond the point of the end of the book, and hopefully the trajectory is good, um, <laughs> but, um, but I don't, I don't think she's, she's finished becoming, I think she's just, she's just calmer. It's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> so well put, it's so well put. Um, there was, um, I just want to, there was one character um, at the end of the book um, who said something that I thought was just great. I mean, so there's this discussion that Gifty is having with this other character and Gifty is saying how she's embarrassed by the fates of her youth. Um, and, and the other character says, you shouldn't be embarrassed. And she says, quote, I think it's beautiful and important to believe in something, anything at all. I really do. And I just, that line just really struck me. And I just wanted to give you a chance to kind of like unpack that or like, what, what what's that line about to you? Yeah, um, well, the character in question is a, is a colleague of Gifties. So she also um, works in the, in the neuroscience field, um, but she is also a, a practicing psychiatrist. Um, and I think what she's trying to express there is that we all need ways to kind of cope to get through things. She recognizes, she, she's a friend enough to recognize that Gifty is going through a particularly hard time. Um, and she doesn't want her to feel shame about the things that, that have brought her comfort in the past. And so I think what she's trying to get across is um, whatever you need to get by, like whatever your lifeboat is, um, grab onto it. You don't have to worry about it. Um, and, and Gifty, who again is a character who's so, um, so inclined to kind of beat herself up about every little thing, every little mistake that she makes, um, isn't yet ready to accept that, that piece of advice. But, um, but I think it comes from a place of, um, of kind of, of therapeutic healing. I think the, the friend wants her to feel better. Yeah. I love that line. I mean, I sort, of, I sort of feel like it's like a line that I definitely agree with. Um, mm -hmm. And um, I just, it, it just really struck me. And there's just so many lines in this book that are just written in this unassuming way. And, but it's just that, like, like that line that I just read and that just, um, they just really stick with you and you end up kicking them around in your, in your mind. Um, so anyway, um, I, uh, so just one other question about kind of mental illness and where it intersects with spirituality. Um, and there's obviously a bigger part of the book is sort of about the differences in spirituality and religion in the, in the two countries, but there's also these different attitudes about mental illness. And for example, you talk about in the book, how schizophrenics in Ghana will, 
um, in ter- or a study was done, or you know, I don't want to generalize too much, but there's a mm-hmm. there's a more there's more positivity around it, and these voices that a schizophrenic might hear would be interpreted in a positive light. Um, mm-hmm. Very much, you know, actually reminds me of the opening of the book, right? I mean, you're talking about yeah. some of that, um, and. Uh, Whereas like in the United States, um, or maybe in the West more generally, that schizophrenia and the voices you might hear would be interpreted very negatively and as a sign of, um, you know, insanity. Um, but anyway, I just I wanted you to like just talk about that a little bit and maybe just tell me like, do you kind of knowing both cultures so well, what is it about, um, you know, Ghanaian spirituality or attitudes toward mental illness that you think might be lacking here in the United mm-hmm. States? Sure. Um, well, the, the, that moment that you're referencing comes from this study that Gifty um, mentions in the book, but that is a real study that was done in 2015, um, where, wherein the scientists looked at um, schizophrenics in Ghana, India, and the United States, um, San Mateo, California specifically. Um, and what they found was that the schizophrenics in India and Ghana had far better relationships with the voices that they were hearing. Um, they were the voices of their family members. They were the voices of God. Um, they were kind of a comfort to them. And in the United States, the, the opposite was true. The voices were violent and intrusive and harsh. Um, and I think that this has something to do with the, the relationship of culture to mental illness, wherein um, the fact that these cultures, um, specifically Ghana and India, they felt um, they felt kind of safe around their voices. They didn't have them, they didn't have the same element of judgment um, being imposed on them by the other people in their community, um, I think allowed them to feel more at ease. Um, and I think there is still so much stigma around mental illness here, um, um, even though, you know, there's there's stigma in, in those other places too, I'm sure. But um, the fact that Gifty's mother thinks of her depression um, not as this kind of, um, not as something to be ashamed of, not as something that's like um, pathological, but just as like this great sadness that she would like to give to God. Um, so it doesn't, she doesn't feel like it needs to be made a big deal of. She just thinks of it as like, it's just another part of my life that I have to give to God. Um, and I think that is an example of the kind of interplay of her culture, her religious beliefs um, and, and mental illness, that there can, there can be different interpretations based on how the community around you thinks about your illness and supports your illness. Um, and so that was part of what I was trying to get to in the book. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It was so, so well done. Um, all right, folks, we have about, you know, 10, 15 minutes left in the interview, and I see a lot of questions coming in. I'm going to get to them, but um, the last major piece of the book that I want to talk about is race. Um, and it's a very, um, it's a very kind of interesting take on race, and um, I think that you come at it in all of these fresh ways. Um, there's like, for example, this church figure who condemns Africans who have not heard of Jesus to hell. He just kind of casually like, oh yeah, they're going to hell. Um, there's a lot more instances of very blunt racism and kind of overt racism, but um, there is a passage in the book, which was like maybe my favorite passage. It was so well done. And it's about um, Gifty's experience of internalized racism. And I just wanted to know if you could read that for us. It's these two paragraphs from 173 that start with when I was a child no one ever said the words institutionalized racism. This is just tune in folks and pay attention. This is so excellent. When I was a child, no one ever said the words institutionalized racism. 
We hardly even said the word racism. I don't think I took a single class in college that talked about the physiological effects of years of personally mediated racism and internalized racism. This was before studies came out that showed that Black women were four times more likely to die from childbirth, before people were talking about epigenetics and whether or not trauma was heritable. If those studies were out there, I never read them. If those classes were offered, I never took them. There was little interest in these ideas back then because there was, there is little interest in the lives of Black people. What I'm saying is I didn't grow up with a language for, a way to explain, to parse out my self-loathing. I grew up only with my part, my little throbbing stone of self-hate that I carried around with me to church, to school, to all those places in my life that worked, it seemed to me then, to affirm the idea that I was irreparably, fatally wrong. I was a child who liked to be right. Mm, it's just so, so, so powerful. Um, and thank God the world seems to be taking a little bit of a step in the right direction and kind of recognizing these things. So like the next yaw that is eight years old now will like not carry around that stone, the throbbing stone of self-hatred. What a line, what a line. Um, and it's so moving and it's so right. And um, anyway, I just, I have a few questions about race for the book, but just um, one is, um, you know, can you just tell me like how you think a novel um, can be a part of the conversation, specifically a novel can be a part of like the conversation that's going on right now about race, like the unique role it might have as an art form. Sure. Um, well, I always start by saying that novels are no substitute for real life and the characters within novels are no substitute for real people. So if you feel moved by a novel, um, then it should hopefully inform the way that you act in the world. It shouldn't just be a thing that you put back on your shelf and think no more about. Um, but on the other hand, our, on, by, by that same token, I think the thing that, that novels provide is an opportunity to see the fullness of these characters' lives. Um, and in this book in particular, racism um, isn't, you know, it isn't the, the direct focus, but it is something that is happening in the lives of these characters, that is happening and having a very deep impact on the lives, um, on the lives of these characters, particularly Gifty, um, who is internalizing all of the things that she's hearing about Black people um, and starting to believe them about herself. Um, and so I think what, what novels provide is a chance to see that interplay, to see um, what Dr. Lauren Michelle Jackson has called the weather um, that is racism, that it um, is just part of the environment of these characters' lives. Um, and hopefully once people kind of start to recognize um, that we exist within this weather, um, what they can do um, is to change the weather. Um, yeah. Beautiful, beautiful. So I did have a couple of questions about race, but I just, I wanna actually move forward because there's so many questions from the audience. The last question I'll ask is that I know um, that I've, I've read that you said that the current moment makes you furious among other things. And there's a lot of um, fury that you have in you. Um, but, you know, I don't wanna, you know, speak for you. Like, well, tell me, like, how are you feeling right now? And just, I just wanted to give you a moment to just talk about what's happening around us right now. Um, 
Yeah, it's utterly maddening. It's utterly maddening. I cannot believe that we are still going through this pandemic in much the same way that we were in March, um, a pandemic that is having a disproportionate effect on Black people um, in terms of the death rate, but also in terms of job losses. You know, fewer than half Black adults are employed right now. That's mind-boggling. Um, and so I feel a just um, a kind of fury, as, I, as you mentioned, and also a kind of helplessness and um, fear and just a, a huge mix of things. But I think if there's anything to take um, hope from, if hope is something that you feel the need to take, which I understand if nobody gets that, um, but if there is anything, I think it's the, the kind of sustained energy that we are seeing um, of people resisting this current climate. Um, that makes me um, feel something akin to hope. So. Beautiful. Yeah. Awesome. Okay, like, I want to pivot from that into some of these questions. So I'm going to kind of do my best to combine some of these questions. Like a couple of the questions are around, so like what's your day-to-day -day life like and what are you reading um, right now? Sure, um, so my day-to-day -day life, um, <laughs> I, you know, I'm actually one of those kind of fortunate people for whom the pandemic didn't change so much about how I lived my days because I already worked from home. Um, so I think I was kind of better suited to a life where you would end up staying at home. Um, so I, I still kind of try to get up in the morning and write for a little bit. Um, I still try to read every day. Um, right now I am reading um, Eula Biss's new book called Having and Being Had, um, which is her kind of investigation or interrogation of capitalism, um, which is kind of a timely book um, for thinking again about what we're going through in, the, in this crisis as people are left jobless. Um, I'm also reading Luster by Raven Leilani, which has been getting a lot of really wonderful buzz and for good reason. It has like one of the um, just kind of best opening, um, opening sentences, but also opening chapters that I've read in a long time. It's like electric to read that book. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Yes, I, that's on my list as well. Um, all right. So this is a really interesting question. It's sort of, so the question is about just to kind of, it's a long question, but to paraphrase, it's like, how do you balance the need to express yourself artistically while also being part of a community that relies on you and you know by that meaning just kind of like your, your desire to be an artist and kind of express something maybe to be for art's sake maybe is not the right word but like that versus a kind of more activist approach to art that is like mm. you know, trying to change things and be part of this community um what do you think yeah, that's a good question. You know, I think I'm I'm like very much one of those people who believes that the personal is political and, and vice versa. Like I can't imagine making art that didn't engage with the things that were going on around me that I was experiencing um, kind of on, on a macro level. Um, it would feel weird to me to write a book that was just like about you know, people looking at flowers in a field or something. Like I don't, I don't, I, I see it as a, um, I just see it as a as a kind of compulsion. I don't know how else to write, but to but to do it this way. Um, and I think um, writing itself is the way that I kind of um, 
try to to use gift, some of Gifty's words or some of Gifty's language. It's, it's the way that I try to make sense of the world. Um, and so I, I, I need it on a personal level, like for myself, the writing. Um, the publishing um, is about how is how that interplay happens with readers. Um, but but the writing is so intimate and so personal and so necessary for me that um, I can't even imagine how else I would kind of get through, get through this mm -hmm. moment, but get through my life. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Um, one last question, which is that your, your debut was so successful. Kind of what pressure, uh, if any, did that exert upon you on the next? Was it just terrifying to write your next novel? This is a question <laughs> from the audience. Or was it mm -hmm. um, gratifying or just in the shadow of that great success? How was it writing this book? Um, there were certainly pressures. I'm really fortunate that the pressure wasn't really external. You know, I, um, I had enough money to live off of. I didn't have um, an agent or an editor who were telling me to like write the next book right now. Um, so those two things alone, I think are incredibly rare, um, but also kind of alleviated some of the, the pressures that other writers feel about writing a second novel. Um, I think the pressures were um, internal to have a book like Homegoing um, that did just so amazingly well um, and was so beloved. Like I didn't want to kind of let anyone down. And I was so <laughs> aware <didn't>. of, <laughs> thank you. Um, I was really aware of the fact that I was now writing um, a book where there were people who would line up to, to buy it and that, um, that felt like a, a new element of responsibility. And so um, I wanted to, I still wanted to like write something that I appreciated, that I loved, that I thought was good, but I also wanted to um, just kind of honor the, this opportunity that I had gotten to be, to be a, a, a writer that, um, that so many readers have, have cherished. So I, um, I really appreciate, I really appreciate it. I know I was, I was saying this to you before we got on, but you know, as soon as I said on, in my socials that I was interviewing you, it's like, it just pops to life. It's like, oh, I'm coming, I'm coming. <laughs> She's my favorite. Oh. Um, all right, one more question from the audience, super quick. And then my final question, the audience from the question super quick is, a uh, question from the audience is, what are you working on next? Are you willing to reveal? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm one of those very superstitious writers who never says what they're working on okay. until after they finished it. So okay. nothing Fair really. Fair enough. <laughs> It's like that question they always ask on political shows, like, are you running for president? And they're like, yeah, <laughs> like have to be cagey about it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So this is my final question. I love ending my interviews with this, with this question, which is that, so imagine you have an ideal reader, a reader who is having the ideal reaction to your book. Um, and they are just, everything you're trying to do is working for them. They're getting every reference, like they're just torn up inside by this amazing book. Just tell me when they close that book, um, what is the feeling, if you could articulate it, that you would want them to have having come through this work? Mm, oh wow, um, that's a great question. I would I would like them to have this feeling of kind of like a sigh of like ease, um, of like letting some stuff go that maybe they've been holding on to. Um, I want it to feel like the child's pose at the end of a of a yoga day, you know. Totally, <laughs> totally. That's how I felt. That's how I, I've I've never even done yoga, and that's how I felt. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> um, okay, so yeah, we're gonna wrap it up there. Thank you so much for spending all this time with us. Congratulations on the work.
Oh, thank you. This was great. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Trisha Blanchett for a Mighty Blaze podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to help other book lovers find us. Join us next time for the season one series finale with the legendary Erica Jong. Until then, keep your blaze burning and your pages turning.